If you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to John chapter 1 with me. What a great sermon introduction, right? I invite you to turn to John chapter 1 with me. You're all engaged, right? You're supposed to, when you're a public speaker, you're supposed to give a hook. Gets everybody, gets everyone's attention engaged. Wow, awesome. Turn to John chapter 1. Okay, sarcasm aside, I would like you to consider just listening. Read along if you'd like to the opening words of John, and it is a rather profound introduction. Better than any introduction I could drum up. So just listen if you'd like. I'm going to read the first five verses of chapter 1 and then verse 14, really looking to have it give us the, the kind of shock and the significance that it's supposed to. In the beginning was the Word... And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him, not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You don't have to know much to know that you've just heard the extraordinary the startling, the shocking. No prelude, no getting you ready for it. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And it just builds upon profound statement after profound statement after profound statement and you're saying, what? Something exceptional, something mind-staggering, something surprising, something powerful, something unstoppable, something unrivaled. So starts the gospel according to John. And then something, no, someone has come here. Someone, none other, than the eternal God who is the life-giving, all-powerful God has come here. So much so, He's become one of us. It's meant to have the effect on us where we say, Whoa! What? Seriously? That would change everything! Yeah, it would. And it did. And it is. It's meant to grip us like that. 
the eternal, all-powerful God who is the giver of life became a human being so that we can truly know God. In a sense, what, what do you say to that? I guess what you say is tell me more. What a way to start. What a way to start a book. What a way to start a letter. What a way to start a gospel account. There's none like it. The gospel according to John is one of, if not the most favorite New Testament portion in existence. Even based upon manuscript evidence that we have, early manuscript evidence, it seems to even indicate and support it's the most, it's the most favoritist. Some observers say it, it's either John or Romans. Amazing. Amazing, and we're, we're meant to be amazed. Having said all of that, as we start our study of the good news about Jesus according to John the Apostle, we're not going to start in chapter 1. <laughs> Uh, I, I don't have any more enthusiasm to give. Next Sunday, we'll start with 1-1, one, one, and we'll jump into the deep end of the pool. Okay? We, we, we dabbled in it this morning, but what we're going to do, actually, is we're going to get acclimated to the gospel according to John by looking at the end. Okay? Uh, in chapter 20, a lot of you know, not all of you know, that in chapter 20, John the Apostle tells us his purpose for writing. So it's a good place to start. It's a good place for us to start. This is like the introduction to the introduction. Because that way, when we, when we read the whole, we know what he's getting at. We know the intent. Okay? So it's always good to try to figure out what the author's intent is. Uh, what was God trying to accomplish through this human author? Or what, what is he accomplishing? I, I hate to speak that way about God. Um, what's God's design? And sometimes it's hard when you read a book of the Bible and you think I've got to read the whole thing and I've got to think through all the data and all the pieces and, and how is it that I can say this is what the whole thing is about? It's important that we do that. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's hard. And in, and in John, it's super easy because it's one of the few places where it explicitly says what the whole thing is about. And so, in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, we're going to see what the whole is about. Okay? So if you'd look with me at chapter 20, verse 30, we hear these words. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. This is chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that, here we go, here's our, here's our purpose, here's our intention. These are written so that, oh, here's why. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Those two verses answer some important questions for us, for us as we try to get acclimated, as we try to become acquainted with this favoritist letter. Those verses answer big questions. We really need to have answered. And so if you're taking notes this morning, uh, three questions will 
allow those two verses to answer. Okay, that will be our outline for this morning in our introduction to the introduction to John. Three questions that will help us get acclimated or acquainted with John that we can have answered from those two verses where we get the purpose. Number one, what makes it credible? What makes the gospel according to John credible? We can answer that from our verses, but let me give you the answer right now. What makes John credible is that it is a written account based upon eyewitness testimony. Okay? John is a written account based upon eyewitness testimony. Testimonies, plural. People who were really there, who really saw things, who observed, who touched Jesus. Eyewitness testimony makes it credible. Let's go ahead and see it in those same verses we just looked at, where it says in verse 30 that Jesus did many other signs, but do notice here, in the presence of the disciples. That's what I underlined to begin with. In the presence of the disciples, he did these things. In the presence of eyewitnesses. In front of people. Real people with names and histories and families and cultures and backgrounds. When the Word became flesh, chapter 1, verse 14, He then did things and He did things in the presence of people like you and like me. Some educated, some not so educated. Probably everything in between. In the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, these are written, the ones that are written in John, these are written, so it's a written thing, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. These things that were observed are written down. I emphasize it a lot. I want to emphasize it again. When we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about a historic person. We're not talking about mythology. We're not talking about fantasy. We're not talking about something that happened in someone's mind. We're not talking about something that happened somehow in a supposed place uh, in the backwoods of somewhere with no historical evidence, no historical backing, no archaeology. No, we're not talking about that. We're talking about Jesus doing things, this is super basic, I know, but doing things in front of people to be observed. So observed, we're going to see in John's gospel account, that it made some people mad. It was so real that it was offensive because of the implications. Undeniable historic events. Not fantasy, not mythology, not legend, not dream. In the presence of. We could go outside of this, and we will, but not now, to see it's not just in front of disciples either. He made the disciples mad sometimes, but he made non-disciples mad also. Now, there are complementary texts to this. You can just listen or jot them down. You can look them up if you'd like to. But just to give a little sampling of this, but it runs throughout John's gospel account. John 19.35, he who saw it, that is the crucifixion, the, the sword piercing Jesus' side, he who saw it, okay, Eyewitness testimony, he who saw it has borne witness. So the one who was there saw it, he's the one bearing witness. 
What kind of witnesses do we like? We like witnesses who are eyewitnesses, who are actually there to see the events happen. John was there to see the events happen. We, we bear witness. He has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. It's a big deal. 21-24, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And he's not just saying that to, to kind of pontificate and we know that his testimony is true because I say so, but the beloved disciple, the disciple who's with Jesus, the disciple who writes this, it's kind of like a, hello, no-brainer. He knows what he's talking about. In addition to that, throughout John's gospel account, we're going to see time and time again, details. Details you would hear from eyewitnesses. Specifics. Sometimes even more specific than the other gospel accounts. Details. Geographical, historical, circumstantial. For example, in chapter 1, we're going to hear in verse 28, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. You, you get that kind of specific. Oh, yeah. If you're living in the first century, I, I know where that is. Chapter 2, wedding at Cana, and on and on it goes. You'll see. My question for you right now is, why does this matter? It matters. In fact, it really matters. Because what really happened really matters. <laughs> it's not a facade. Really happened, really matters. And why does it really matter? It really matters because you're real. And I'm real. And our problems are real. And our sin is real. And death is real. And suffering is real. And here we are. We need a real Savior. Christianity, I should qualify that, authentic Christianity has always believed this. That the genuineness of everything stands or falls with the genuine historicity of the events. If these things didn't happen, you are an idiot if you're a Christian. Right? I'm borrowing from the Apostle Paul's kind of crassness. Of all people, we're the most to be pitied. What a bunch of fools and idiots. If these things didn't actually, physically in time and space reality, happen. Because we're in time and space reality and we need a Savior who works in time and space reality. So it's super important for us. I feel a certain way about Jesus. God has made us emotional beings. 
If you're a Christian, you feel a certain way about Jesus and Jesus affects your emotions. But the reason that can actually happen is because you know something about Jesus based upon reality, based upon history. And again, we kind of are are at a weird spot in our world right now where we even talk about what we think and know and we use the wrong terminology and we talk about feelings. I would encourage you not to do that as a Christian. My commitment to Christ is not based upon my feelings. Well, I feel like he was raised from the dead. I feel like he was a real person. I feel like it's true. I actually don't feel any of those things. The feelings come because of what I know. But what I know comes from outside of me. Again, we we need to be talking about history. Something real. Okay? <laughs> Please notice this as we go through John. He, he goes out of his way to give you details. To give you intricacies. Of course, there will always be people who say, here's why I don't think it happened. Here's, you know, there will always be that. And by the way, I don't get into that very much, except when I'm reading commentaries and introductions. And maybe I, I should say, especially for those of you who will who are in college or you'll go to college and move on and take religion classes or English, whatever classes you take, there, there's all kinds of attacks on the genuineness of different books, even like John. I just want you to know it's not new. Okay? And even though we don't emphasize it here and I don't talk about it week in and week out, it's common knowledge. And there are answers to the questions. And as there are attackers of the Bible and historicity and legitimacy, there are defenders as well. And there are answers to your questions. What's interesting oftentimes is the anti-supernaturalistic kind of anti-Jesus arguments that are used oftentimes that I end up seeing are actually old, outdated ones that current-day unbelieving scholars don't even subscribe to anymore. So respect your professor, but calm down. Got good resources for you. I just heard a college professor um, write something the other day. You know, it was just a, a, an anti-Christian sentiment. You know, and he was, he was, this is not directly related, but just a classic example uh, and say something along the lines of discounting Christianity and its genuineness because it just keeps changing and the Bible changes anyway because it started with Aramaic and then it went to Hebrew and then it went to Greek. Put that on social media, those stupid Christians. I'm like, you're a stupid professor and you have no idea what you're talking about and what you said isn't even true. You know, I wanted to climb inside of my iPhone and go, you're a a liar. Anyway, thank you for letting me kind of get that off my chest. (laughs) 
I do feel a little bit burdened, though, for our college students and those who go to college because since we don't emphasize these things that are referred to as Bible introduction, who wrote what, defense for legitimacy and all that, we, don't, we just don't dwell on that very much, that I don't want you to go and then think that we've never heard of it. Um, the hardest classes I took in seminary, how about that, were New Testament introduction and Old Testament introduction. We shouldn't be that way. But it's dealing with who wrote what, manuscript evidence, when did they write it, genuineness, authenticity. And in some ways, they were the best classes I took because I left having read all of the attacks going, my commitment to the authenticity of Scripture and the events is stronger than ever. It is an important discipline. We just don't emphasize it a lot here. Okay, we're never going to get done unless we go. So I don't want to go two weeks of introduction to the introduction because then there's going to be trouble. Let's move on, okay? Let's go to the second question that our opening verses in chapter 20, at least, that we looked at this morning, help us to answer. Number two, what is it about? What is it about? What is John's gospel account about? To answer that question, it is about the evidence It's about the evidence that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Savior who's worthy to be trusted. It's about that. It's about what Jesus, it's about who Jesus is and about what Jesus did. Again, let's look at verse 30 of chapter 20. Now, Jesus, it's about him. Now, we're going to get back to him in a second. Did many other signs. So it's about what Jesus did. Signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these signs, actions, teachings, these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What's it about? It's about Jesus being Christ which doesn't really work for us because we just think Jesus Christ, right? First name, last name. It's kind of how we think. And if you're a Bible veteran and you know all about the Bible, you know that's just silly and, you know, but not all of you are. That Jesus is the Messiah. Okay, I apologize to those of you who have been here for years and you always hear me say it, but for newcomers... In the Old Testament, written in Hebrew, portions in Aramaic, by the way. In Hebrew, we have the New Testament written in Greek. And where you have Messiah in the Old, the New Testament uses the word Christ. Christ means Messiah. Messiah means Christ, depending on the language you're speaking. That doesn't help you too much, but it gets some traction going. John writes so that you would know and come to have conviction that Jesus, how about this, born in Bethlehem, real place, real time, okay, who became flesh, born in Bethlehem, Jesus, oh, then grew up in Nazareth, we're going to learn about that in John, and that's not even the right side of the tracks, Jesus born in Bethlehem. grew up in Nazareth, is the Messiah, is the Christ. See, it's easier for me when I see Christ, I just translate it in my head to the Hebrew way, Messiah, because it's kind of shocking, it's kind of unnatural, it's not normal. And you say, what's that? 
that Jesus, the human being, right? The, 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 the kid who played, the kid who grew up in Nazareth, human being, that, that, that guy that they all would have known about is Messiah. What's Messiah mean? The anointed one. It's what you use to describe kings, okay? In the ceremony of becoming a king, you're anointed going through the ceremony and you're acknowledged as the king. Well, we have different messiahs in the Old Testament because whenever Israel has a king, they're a messiah. But it's always in anticipation of one who would be the ultimate king, the one who would free the people ultimately and forever, right? The one who wouldn't die, the one who would live forever, the one who would be, and and a king is going to be one who rules and is sovereign, but also delivers, protects, sustains, keeps, satisfies. And all throughout the Old Testament, there's the anticipation, there's prophecy, there's expectation, there are images that anticipate and wait because one day one will come and his kingdom will have no end. And he will rule and reign with perfect righteousness. He is the one who gives life. He's the ultimate deliverer. I wrote these things so that you would know that Jesus from Nazareth, right? I mean, however you can kind of downplay that real human is the Messiah. The one we've all been waiting for. That's what he's writing. That's why he wrote it. I hope that helps. He's the one. Oh, he's that one. Messianic expectation. Divine fulfillment. And did you notice he does signs? So he, again, we have claims, yes. Oh, we're going to hear the I am statements of Jesus and they're awesome. I am the bread of life. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We have all these grand I am statements. Sometimes he just says, I am. Because he's claiming to be none other than God. Quoting from the Old Testament. But what we have, in addition to claims... We have objective, in time and space, reality, in history, signs that authenticate. A lot of people have made big claims. But they don't raise dead people who now smell from the grave. And we're going to see Jesus does that. He's that kind of ultimate deliverer, savior. Or who makes things out of nothing. Who walks on water. Who does all of the signs that he does. As a matter of fact, John, at least the first portion by some, is referred to as the book of signs. The book of actions that authenticate. He's the one. He is the one we were waiting for. Chapter 1, verses 19 to chapter 12, verse 50. It's signs, 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 and more signs. Power over death, power over nature. He does things that only God could do. He's also going to show, to demonstrate in our verse, that he's the Son of God. Messiah is the Son of God. And we could say, well, that means he's divine. And it does. We heard about that in chapter 1. We'll hear about it throughout John. He's none other than the Eternal One. But there's more to Son of God. 
Not less, but more. He's the Son of God who's sent by His Father. Chapter 17, we're going to learn, He's sent to do a work. He's got this formal, official kind of relationship with His Father, and His Father sends Him, and He agrees to come, and He accomplishes the task, and He does it as the Son. It's extraordinary. I think he's referred to as sons. One commentator observes in the original language over 40 times. Refers to his father, again, about 100 times. There's this unique relationship between the father and the son. John is written so that we would know that he is the son of God. Divine, sent, capable, able, say more we could just go right to the church picnic from here couldn't we if you came in late we have our church picnic today should be fun one more thing about the signs that we're going to see it's not as explicit but you'll see it not signs in particular, but it, it's related. Throughout John's gospel account, we're going to learn a lot about Israel. It's important that we learn some things about Israel. I'll help you along the way if you don't know much. We're going to learn a lot about the Old Testament. I'll help you along the way if you don't know much. It'll be a, way, it'll be a backdoor way to learn the Old Testament. Some of you already know the Old Testament, and hopefully this helps you to see the significance of the old found in the new. But we're going to see that when we learn about who Jesus is, we're going to see that there are all of these holidays. Think holiday, holy day. Festivals. All of these things that the Jews are supposed to do to remember God's faithfulness or to anticipate God's faithfulness, to remember their lack of faithfulness. Things like Passover, you've heard of that. Different feasts, Feast of Tabernacles or booths, all of these different kinds of holidays that really end up focusing on the temple, many of them, and the significance of, of going to God, approaching God, knowing God through these means, sacrifices. And what we're going to see in John's Gospel account is Jesus is the fulfillment of those things. So here Israel had Passover that they had to do and acknowledge their sin and they had to have atonement and bloodshed and death and then the angel of, of the Lord would pass over so they wouldn't die. And Jesus is referred to as the Passover lamb. When John says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that's got Passover written all over it. He is the one. He is the one who we've been waiting for. He is the lamb of God. Fulfillment. Oh, even different things when he says, I'm the bread of life, living water, we're going to see that these things are time and time again related to Old Testament customs, practices, holidays. And what ends up happening is they point to Jesus and he shows up and he says, I'm the temple. We're going to see that. When he says, destroy this temple, and it'll be raised up again, 
fascinating. You want to meet with God? You want to have fellowship with God? You want to have your sins forgiven? It's through me. All of those things, to borrow from Paul and the writer of Hebrews, were types and shadows. And we're going to see them. Jesus is on the scene during Passover. Jesus is on the scene during these things. And what happens, it's, it's, it's meant to have all arrows pointing on him. He's the one. It's him. It's going to be good. And then, to give you a little bit of history, wouldn't want to die for this, but commentators talk about when John wrote. This is fascinating. So, the other gospel accounts talk about the coming destruction of the temple. Right? Like in Matthew 24 and 25. And it happens, right? Jesus prophesies that it's going to happen. And in 70 AD, we know historically that the Romans come and they destroy Jerusalem and the temple is destroyed. That's common historical knowledge. AD 70. Gospel of John is unique. He doesn't talk, talk about it in those terms. And many scholars believe John writes after the destruction of the temple. In the 80s, early, yeah, as, as, as late as 90, it would make sense. He doesn't talk about it coming. He speaks as if it has already happened. And again, I wouldn't want to die for that. We could go early date. We could go later date. It's not ultimately relevant, but historically it would seem to match what's happening. So think of it in these terms, okay? Put yourself in Jewish shoes. Jewish shoes, destruction of the temple, crucifixion of Jesus, all of this stuff has happened, turmoil, now what? Now we're being persecuted, now we're scattered, now we're running around, and we don't have, again, think unbelieving Jew who hasn't believed in Jesus, we don't have the way to God which is the temple. We don't have sacrifices. We don't have atonement. We can't celebrate our festivals. And we are in trouble. This is terrible, terrible, terrible. If John's writing from a later date, post-destruction of the temple, and you read the gospel according to John through that lens, it makes me go, interesting. It would work either way. But he's making it so clear that Jesus is the one you need. You don't need another temple. You don't need any of those things. He actually is the fulfillment of all of those things. He's the one. I have so many notes here that I don't get a cover. Very perplexing for a preacher. Passover lamb, John 1.29. Bread of life, John 6.51. Light of the world, John 8.12. Living water, John chapter 7. And on it goes. You can jot down Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, if you'd like, from the Apostle Paul talking about new moons, festivals, those holidays, Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. I think John compliments that. 
The substance belongs to Christ. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 5 to 7 complements that as well. So I guess what I'm saying, then why didn't you say it? As we see Jesus doing the signs, as we see Jesus doing all that he does, teaching the way that he does, in the context of the holidays, festivals, just know that it's not by accident that he's doing what he's doing when he's doing it. And listen for and look for, and I'll point them out, when there's a connection being made between who Jesus is, what he does, and the Old Testament holiday, holy day. Those were good. Those were in anticipation. Those were shadows. Substance belongs to Christ. John wants to make sure that his readers, especially those Jews, aren't shadow huggers. How crazy would it be to chase the shadows when reality has come? Doesn't make any sense. Jesus is who you need. Jesus is the one you're looking for, as I like to say, even if you didn't know you're looking for him. And that's what he's getting at when he says, Jesus is the Christ. Because if the Christ comes, you don't need the shadows. Most of us in this room don't have a Jewish heritage or lineage. But in principle, we can still understand. In principle, we could still apply. Why would we settle for anything less, as religious as it might be, than the substance, the reality, the actual? Doesn't make any sense. Don't be a shadow grabber, shadow chaser. That would be crazy when the person is here and has come. Let's move to number three. Number three, why is John necessary? Why is John's gospel account necessary? Why is it necessary? And to answer the question, it's necessary because eternal life comes through trusting in Jesus as Messiah. Eternal life comes by trusting in Jesus as Messiah. Why is this necessary for them? Why is it necessary for you, for me? Again, our text. Verse 31, these are written so that you may believe or trust or depend upon, believe, have confidence in that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Why is it necessary? It's necessary if you're going to have life, right? And Jesus will clarify what he means. If we say, well, we don't really know what he means by that. Yes, we do because of the context. He means eternal life. He means knowing God. He means reconciled to God. He means no more guilt for your sin. He means God isn't holding your sins against you anymore. He means life in that sense. So these things are written so that you would believe that Jesus is the one and that believing in him, you would have life. The expectation is there that naturally, how about this? You don't have life. And I don't have life. As religious as we might be, because many of the people Jesus is addressing are religious fanatics who even say they believe the Bible. 
And yet John is writing these things to them so that they would believe and having believed, they would have life in his name because they don't currently have life. They think that life comes from knowing Bible verses. Jesus will confront them for that, by the way. No, life comes by believing in the person who really came here, who is Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, who is the Messiah. You personally trust in him. Beyond a religion, beyond knowledge, it's believing in him, resting in him. That was necessary for them. That's necessary for you. Necessary for me. Why is it necessary? Because eternal life is what we need. Lots is said about this. John chapter 5, verse 21, 10, verses 10 and 11, John 11, 25 to 27, John 14, verse 6, John 17, verse 3, and on and on and on the list could go. But the preacher isn't going to go on and on and on with his list. But it's a constant refrain. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's not arrogance. That just makes sense. If he is the Son of God, born of the flesh, the Messiah. Oh, oh, well, that would just make sense. That's what we've been waiting for. Even if we haven't been waiting for it. One aside, and then a preview of the whole book that's really going to help. And we'll be done. The aside is, isn't it interesting that John thinks this can be accomplished by writing and then by you or these Jews or me reading. That's noteworthy. Yeah, but I, I wasn't there. That's right. The original audience wasn't there either. Sometimes we think that somehow all these people were there and that was the only way you could really believe something to be true. No, he goes out of his way, eyewitness testimony, writing to people who aren't there. Oh, maybe some of them knew of Jesus. Maybe some of them knew Jesus. But again, he is committed to, these things are written down so that you may believe. Sometimes we forget that. It's written down. In that sense, you're not different than they are, though separated by quite a few birthdays. sufficient that we would come to know Jesus well enough to be able to trust in him for our eternal destiny based upon what's written down. That's pretty significant. Okay, here's what's going to happen in John. It's helpful to think of John big picture in four parts. I didn't invent this. I took this from the way most people would read the book. And if it helps you, here's how it's going to break down. Four parts. The opening verses might be called the prologue if you want to sound fancy. Introduction, basic introduction, opening 18 verses. Then you have what's sometimes called the book of signs. Chapter 1, verse 19 to chapter 12. The book of signs. All these signs that he does. Authenticating, proving, showing. He's different. He's divine. He's unique. He's the one. And then, unique to John, chapter 13 through chapter 20. Usually people call it the passion. There's so much dedicated there to the end. 
It doesn't wait for the final chapters. We've got chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter that's his suffering, going to Calvary, going to the cross. It makes it a unique gospel account. And then in chapter 21, we have the ending. We have the epilogue. We have the conclusion. So really, it's a book about signs, and it's a book about the passion. And we're going to look at it in those terms, piece by piece, section by section. I plan to learn a lot. I plan to do all I can to help you learn a lot. I commit to you to studying as hard as I possibly can to make it as clear as I can by the help of the Spirit so that we might know Jesus for who He really is and worship Him as He really should be worshipped. It'll be exciting. We should pray now. Father, thank You for today. Thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank You that He, the eternal God who was in the beginning, became one of us so that he might be our substitute, so that he might take our place, that he might be our savior. Please help us this morning, whether we be men, women, boys, girls, to see that we need to not trust in ourselves or some sort of system, but to trust in Jesus because he's trustworthy. And may that trustworthy, that commitment to his trustworthiness only increase as we work through the gospel according to John together. May Christ be praised and may the church be built up because of your work through your word and the spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.